where we continue our study of the book of Acts, and we are looking at Acts 25 and 26. I think it will be obvious, hopefully obvious, that we will not be able to deal with everything in these two chapters. I'd encourage you to read these two chapters this afternoon. There's a lot here, some great uh, material and teaching. We'll focus our attention on a few items that I think are, are really important. What I think is interesting about this text is that when Paul gives his defense uh, before King Agrippa, and the governor Festus will be there as well, um, it's interesting that there are two different responses to Paul. Festus thinks that Paul's learning has driven him mad, and he blurts that out towards the end of Paul's defense. King Agrippa seems to say, maybe ironically or somewhat sarcastically, you know, in just such a short time, Paul, do you think you can convert me? Do you think you can bring me to Christ? And I think that's right about the passage in the sense that Paul's recounting of his personal story of coming to faith in Jesus Christ really demands a response from all of us. And so I want to encourage three different groups of people. Maybe you find yourself in one of these three groups, whether you're online or whether you're here this morning. Uh, There are some of you, I hope a few of you, maybe more than a few of you, who have come here this morning and right now, spiritually, God's doing a lot in your life and you kind of feel like God's really working. You feel vibrant. And I'm hoping that as you, we look at Paul's recounting of his story, that you will become even more mesmerized and amazed at the way God has poured his grace out on you in Jesus. But I suspect certainly online, and certainly some of you are here this morning, and spiritually, you probably feel more like you're in the desert than anywhere else. You may be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you are not gripped with joy, you're not gripped with, with, with a praise for the gospel. You're, you're struggling with life and its circumstances. And in some sense, you may have lost touch with God's grace. And I hope that this morning, God will begin to woo you back to him and that you will reorient yourself under God's grace. And there may be some of you either online or here this morning, and you have never really put your faith and confidence in Jesus alone. Um, You may be exploring Christianity. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, you're not sure about Christianity at all. And and I hope as you hear Paul recount his story, that God in his grace and mercy would begin to push you forward, that you might take more steps towards Jesus, toward exploring what Jesus has done for you. And maybe in some cases, this will be the morning that God brings you over the line where you trust Jesus plus nothing to receive the grace that God has for you. There's many, many things in uh, these two chapters. I want us to uh, focus on what I think Paul does in part of his defense here uh, with King Agrippa is I believe that what Paul does, the net effect anyway of how he describes his story is that he, uh, he... deals with three common misconceptions about Christianity. And he confronts those misconceptions through his own story, through his own personal experience of Jesus. And that's what we want to look at, these three misconceptions and how Paul answers those 
three misconceptions. But before we get into the misconceptions, I just want to set the context a little bit for you. Go back to Acts 25. Last week, we looked at how Paul had to give a defense before the governor, Felix. And now there's a new governor, a new Roman governor for this area of the Roman Empire. His name is Festus. Festus comes... He goes to Jerusalem, he meets with some of the key Jewish leaders, in some sense it's like it's his orientation to the new position. Those leaders, Jewish leaders say, we want you to to, to bring Paul to Jerusalem, right? To, 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 to To face us and to face our accusations. Not so they want him to have a trial, they want to ambush him on the way. They're going to kill him. And God sovereignly unbeknownst to Festus, works through Festus, so Festus doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm not sending him to to Jerusalem. You all can come to Caesarea where we will have this legal proceeding. And so Jewish leaders go to Caesarea. They make accusations against Paul. Paul defends himself, says, I've done nothing wrong. I am innocent. I'm willing to, 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 to die if, if I deserve to die, but I don't think I've done anything wrong. And then Paul sort of dramatically appeals to Caesar. In other words, take my case to Caesar, which was a prerogative for a Roman citizen. So what Paul is sort of suggesting here is I don't think I'm going to get a fair trial with the uh, Jewish uh, religious leaders. I certainly uh, don't want to go down to Jerusalem to be tried. I don't think I'll get a fair trial. He appeals to Caesar. And now Festus is going to have to uh, send Paul to Caesar so that Caesar himself, the leader of the Roman Empire, will hear Paul's case. But there's a problem. Beginning in verse 13, and the problem is, is that Festus doesn't really understand what the accusations against Paul are. He's a Roman governor. He doesn't understand the vagaries of uh, the Jewish accusations against Paul. And in the middle of all this, King Agrippa and Bernice show up. Now, King Agrippa is sort of the sort of the Jewish king of some of the provinces around. Israel. Again, uh, Festus is the Roman governor. Uh, King Agrippa was the grandson of Herod. We know Herod at the birth of Christ, that Herod. He's also the son of the Herod that put James, the half-brother, to death. And, um, and then he was eaten by worms right after that. Um, and that's his father. And now King Agrippa is the king. He's, he's able to, to uh, nominate the, the high priest in Israel at the time. He governs a number of different areas around. He doesn't govern the whole province of Palestine. But he shows up with Bernice. Now, Bernice is an interesting person. If you read some of the, the history of the time, both Agrippa and Bernice have a very complicated uh, love story. I'm going to leave it at that. You can look it up. So they show up. Festus begins to tell Agrippa, I've got this person, Paul. I don't really understand why he's being charged. I don't think he deserves to be punished or to die. It's something about this Jesus who died, and then Paul says he's risen again. I really don't know what to do with him, and now he's supposed to go to Caesar, and I need to give a report back to Caesar, and I'm not sure what to say. And King Agrippa said... I'd like to hear this man. And that's where we get to Acts 26. 
And so when we get to Acts 26, Paul is going to give his defense of Christianity, I think, and a defense of his life and ministry. But this is a little bit different than what happened with Felix. It's a little bit different than happened with Lysias, who was the Roman commander that had him in front of people. Because Paul is on his way to Caesar. So this is not an official legal proceeding. This is actually Agrippa and Bernice and Festus are simply going to have Paul talk and defend himself to them without the the legal threats or punishments upon Paul. And so Paul, I think in sharing his story, is going to answer three misconceptions about Christianity, and we see this in Acts 26. So here's the first misconception. There's a lot of people, I would say there's even people in in churches who actually believe that Christianity is primarily for good people. But the reality is, as Paul shares his personal testimony, Christianity is for those who are moral failures. Christianity is for people who who understand they are not the people they ought to be. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this all the time. I'm, I, I, you know, I, uh, I, I'm not, you know, I get out. I'm an extrovert, so I talk to lots of people. Uh, you know, I'm at the Carnegie Lake Rowing Association, rowing. Not very well, but I'm rowing. I talk to people. And when they find out I'm a pastor, a lot of the, what I get then is, oh, I don't think I could ever go to church. My life is a mess. And I try to tell them, well, so is everyone. I'm sorry, I threw you all under the bus. So is everyone else who goes to this church. Join us. You'll feel right at home. Now what is fascinating about Paul's testimony, and again, this is the third time we've heard this throughout the book of Acts. Notice what it says in verse 9 as Paul talks about his own life. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And you think about what this testimony is saying. Paul is, yes, he's an ordinary believer in one way, but he is the primary church planter who's planting churches all over the Roman Empire. Paul writes a fair amount of the New Testament, more books than anybody else. Paul is the leader of the church. He's this, the, the, the model, the example in some ways to the church at large. And yet, what is his background? He imprisoned people unjustly. He agreed with their uh, the decisions uh, to, to be put to death. He, he was complicit at the very least in murder. He also tried to get people to recant their faith in Jesus by putting massive pressure on them and in his tyrannical attempts to coerce them to give up the faith. Paul's history before he trusted Christ is not a model of what you'd like to see in a church. And just think about it, what it was like for the early Christians in in the area. Once Paul does trust Christ, and then one week he's persecuting believers, and almost it feels like the next week he's preaching in your little house church. 
That would be comfortable. Come hear a sermon by a guy who put us in jail last week. Offering will be taken. You see, Paul's own description of how he came to Jesus shows us that Christianity is not primarily for good people. It's for people who are moral failures. It's for people who say, I'm not the person I need to be. I can't be the person I need to be. I need help. I need Jesus plus nothing. Oh, this is what is so hard for us to believe even those of us in the church. I can't tell you how many dozens and dozens and dozens of times talking to someone who is a believer in Jesus, but they are stuck in their walk with Christ because before they came to Christ, they did several spectacular moral failures, or even after they came to Jesus, they really blew it, and they can't seem to get over it, and they can't seem to believe that God's grace was bigger than their mistakes. And they're paralyzed. I suspect there's a number of you just like this this morning. I remember vividly, uh, this is a conflation of dozens of stories, but people who, who did things, and they, they were bad things. They were, they were not good. They lived reckless, moral lives. They hurt people. They harmed people. God brought them to himself. They believe that Jesus died for them, but they are often plagued by these memories of past failure. And they can't seem to get their head around the idea that Jesus came to take away all of our sin before we came to Christ and after we came to Christ. And the blood of Jesus is bigger than our biggest failure. Believers who struggle to believe what Paul himself wrote, again, his personal experience and the revelation he received, was where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is also a common statement I get from people who are outside the faith. I've been told, just out in the neighborhood, different other context, oh, pastor, I'm too far gone. Jesus could never save me. The answer is, you're just the kind of person he came to save. In fact, he saved me. In my moral failure, I'm not the person I should be. And yet Jesus came and died for me and for you. For some strange reason, I don't quite understand it. I I watched an episode of Britain's Got Talent. That is not a television show I recommend or I watch regularly. But someone sent me a clip and I listened to it. It was... Britain's Got Talent, I think there's America's Got Talent, I've never seen that, but it's a contest, different people perform, they sing, they dance, they do magic, they do all kinds of things, and then there are, these, there are judges there, Simon Cowell is one of the big judges on Britain's Got Talent, you probably remember him from American Idol fame, and uh, one day a, a man came to perform and he was a pastor. And they were sort of shocked he was a pastor. He ended up leading this choir, and they did really well. I think they got the Golden Buzzer Award and advanced to the next round of this competition. But one of the interesting things was David Williams is one of the other judges. But he looked at this pastor and said, Pastor, do you think you can save Simon Cowell's soul? Everybody laughed. 
I think even Simon turned to the judge and said, listen, if, if we're all going to the lake of fire, you'll be driving the bus, you know. You know, sort of the idea that Simon Cowell is unsavable. Simon Cowell is beyond the scope of God's grace. That is not true. Christianity rightly understood is that Christianity, Jesus, is for the people who are not the people they ought to be. Stonehill Church is not a place for the really good uh, goody two-shoes to come and we can judge everybody else because we have it all together. This is a place where we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and we say every week, we confess sin every week because we constantly admit we are not the people we need to be, but our trust and hope is in Jesus plus nothing else. And we've got to believe that. And some of you who, who, who are believers, you are believers in Jesus Christ. You are plagued with, with, with a sense of condemnation in your heart. And that sense of condemnation actually can become bigger at times than the grace of Jesus. So Christianity is not simply for good people. It is for moral failures like us, people who understand that we are not the people we ought to be. That's the first misconception that I think Paul's testimony deals with. There's a second misconception that Paul corrects in his story, and that is this. Christianity is about earning God's love. A lot of people look at Christianity and think to themselves, Christianity is just like all the other religions. In, in many religions, they've got a series of five things you've got to do or seven things you've got to do. They've got a list of do's and don'ts. And if you do enough of the do's and you don't do enough of the... and you, do, you don't do some of the don'ts so much, maybe your good works will outweigh your bad and God will accept you. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about receiving God's love through faith in Jesus. It's about receiving God's love. It's not about earning God's love. It's receiving God's love through what Jesus did, not through what you do. Notice Paul when he speaks of his own conversion. Look at verse 15. He's confronted with the ascended and resurrected Jesus the bright light comes. Paul is blinded. We'll go back up to verse 14. There was a voice that comes. This is Jesus talking to Paul. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that Jesus views persecution of him because God's people are being persecuted. Jesus identifies with his people. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed, appeared to you for this very purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And now notice what Paul says about how it is that you, you come to, to faith in Jesus. How do you receive the grace from Jesus. He says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Notice that phrase, by faith in me. Christianity is not fundamentally about you getting your act together and doing enough good to outweigh your bad, and then God will accept you. It's about trusting Jesus, what he did, how he performed. He lived the life he should have lived. He died the death you deserved. And simply by believing, transferring your trust from whatever you're trusting the good works that you're doing. I, I think a, a lot of people I talk to are really hoping that God will grade on the curve. And that if I'm, if I'm in the top 50 percentile, I'm in. No. You get right by God. How? You have to turn to God, right? You, you repent. You turn from your sin. You, tr- you turn from whatever you were trusting in to get right with God. And you turn to who? Jesus. You believe in what Jesus did. That is what brings you into a relationship with God. How many times... Have I heard even believers, I mean, I think they're believers, who lose touch with what real Christianity is. I'll never forget dealing with uh, uh, a couple in, 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 in a couple churches ago, and the, the woman had lived a reckless life before she came to faith and made some, you know, significant errors in her behavior after she came to Christ. And what she admitted to us as, as we were working with her, she admitted the reason why I'm, I'm a workaholic in terms of ministry. She was involved in all the committees in the church, practically. If she had been absent from church, we would have ceased to exist. We tried to get her, to, can, can, can you just not do everything? And she said, the reason I'm serving so much is I'm trying to make up for all the sin that I committed before so God will love me. That's not Christianity. Christianity, and what Paul is saying here, is you get right with God not by following a bunch of rules, not by doing the right thing, not by doing more good than bad. It's turning. Yes, you need to turn from your sin. Your eyes need to be open so you see your sin for what it is, but you see Jesus for what he did, and you receive the the unconditional love of God through the death of Jesus Christ, plus nothing else, and you depend upon him and what he did to get you right with God. I think too often people both inside the church and outside the church have taken Christianity and distorted it into to, to, to some kind of a religion where our performance becomes more important than what Jesus did on that cross for us. And the damage that is done, that damage that does to a believer who has lost touch with true Christianity. And the damage it will do to, a, to an unbeliever who somehow mistakenly believes, I can still earn God's love and not turn to Christ. It's incalculable. And I know of too many people who I, I think are believers who because they never could fully embrace real Christianity, 
They would somehow get it straight on Sunday morning. But Monday through Saturday, they would live their lives as if God's acceptance of them depending on, depended on their performance. And when you do that, you put yourself in, in, in like a, 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 you know, one of those durable hamster wheels. And you're, you know, I mean, I, I had a hamster. I, I realized... I really liked my hamster. I got one when I was a little kid. I thought he was really great. And it, I, I thought he was smart, actually. But then I saw him in that wheel all the time. And I realized this, he's not so smart. He's running, 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 not getting nowhere. And a lot of people, even believers, spend so much time of their lives in a durable cage trying to gin up enough good works to feel accepted by God rather than receive the unconditional love that is theirs in Jesus plus nothing. And I hate to say it, if that's where you're at today. Some Christians who never fully grasp the grace of God will find that running in that durable cage is too much. And they'll leave the church because it's too painful. Of course it is. Because that's not Christianity. It's not grace. It's not Jesus plus nothing. That's the second misconception. There's a third one. There's actually many more, but we've we'll talked about three this morning. It's interesting in verse 19, uh, uh, Paul continues his, his personal story with King Agrippa. He talked about he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He preached to those in Damascus and then Judea and then to the Gentiles. Verse 21, Paul says, this is the reason they seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Paul says, to this day I've had that help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I think it's very likely that, you know, this is a summary that Luke gives us of this meeting with King Agrippa. I, I think there's probably more to this uh, transcript and the summary Luke gives us. But I can imagine Paul referring to Psalm 16 that says, the, you know, your Holy One will not see decay to, to, to argue from the Old Testament the reality that the Messiah would need to die but would also rise again. In verse 24, you have a reaction from Festus. As he was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he appeals right to King Agrippa, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. His appeal to King Agrippa is this. King Agrippa, you know full well what happened in Jerusalem not too long ago. You know full well that there was this man named Jesus who, who was crucified. You know full well that there are multiple witnesses, many witnesses, hundreds of witnesses who say they saw Jesus alive. You know that this was not done in some secret. It was all done in the open. In fact, you can talk to the eyewitnesses, I think Paul is basically saying. And Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about 500 people saw Jesus alive after his death. And some of them are still alive. Paul was actually asking when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, go and interview the witnesses. 
Ask them what they saw. There probably wasn't very many people in Jerusalem who didn't know someone, who knew someone, who knew someone, someone who heard a witness talk about what they saw in the resurrection of Jesus. So the misconception that I think Paul is speaking in his story is, is that I think sometimes people think, and maybe you think this, you're here this morning, you think that Christianity is an appeal to a blind leap of faith. I know some people think that. I have relatives who think that. Of me, saying you're just, you know, you're just telling people a, a, a story that they, they have to stop any kind of intellectual involvement with the story you're preaching to people in order to believe it. But that's not true. Jesus himself, quoting the Old Testament, said, you need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind, and your strength. What Paul is referring to when he said this was not done in a corner, he is essentially uh, sort of challenging Agrippa to, to investigate what, what, what has been done openly and publicly. He's asking him to, to, to consider the actual historical evidence through many, many witnesses that there was a man named Jesus who said he was God, who died, said he would rise again, and sure enough, he did rise on the third day. And that all of the followers of Jesus who ran from Jesus as he was being tried and when he was killed are now openly preaching and dying for that Jesus, only to be explained well by the fact that they came in contact with a resurrected and ascended Jesus who empowered them to do what heretofore they could not do. So I would encourage all of us and maybe you're here this morning and you've got intellectual questions about the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm glad you do have questions. You should, you should ask those questions. We'd love to talk to you about those questions. For those of you who've got a lot of time in your hands and you're going on vacation in a week or so, I've got two gigantic books here. I'll let you borrow them if you promise to give them back. One is called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright right here. It's a light summer read, 700 pages. In this volume, N.T. Wright, who is a scholar, a, a, a very good scholar, a fine scholar, compellingly will help you think through the evidence and why you should seriously consider that the reality of the resurrection is actually true history. Now, for a little bit lighter reading at only 660 pages, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach by Michael Lacona is another interesting book that basically attempts to look at the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and evaluate them based on what any historian of that, of that time period would do to evaluate, can we have any confidence that the gospels are telling the truth? I'll be honest, I don't, I don't agree with all of Michael Lacona's conclusions, but what you will read in there is that we have histories all the time of people like Julius Caesar, who lived just a, f a few decades before Jesus, 
who wrote the history of the, uh, of the, of the Gallic Wars, and, and, and most historians accept those as legitimate, but the reality is the resurrection for the, resur the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so much more compelling than even that history. And so I would challenge all of us, particularly those of you who have questions, Christianity is not about taking a blind leap of faith into oblivion. It's about making a careful investigation of this man called Jesus Christ who claimed to, to be the Son of God, who died and rose again. And there is strong historical evidence to buttress any person of good faith and goodwill who wants to investigate that and to give you the kind of intellectual heft so that you can put your faith and confidence in Christ based on a careful examination of who he was and who he said he was. So that's a third misconception. It's not a blind leap of faith. Christianity is about putting your faith and confidence in a real Jesus, a real historical Jesus that is attested to by a plethora of witnesses and eyewitnesses that stand the test of historical and intellectual scrutiny. So now we need to respond. I'd like everyone to bow your heads. In a moment, we're going to sing our closing prayer, really. It's a prayer that the Holy Spirit would change us and melt us and mold us. He would speak to us. If you're here this morning or you're online and you... looking at Acts 25 and 26, and maybe you're here this morning and you, you're really struggling to hold on to the gospel. I, I just want to encourage you to consider being with our prayer teams right after the service. They're going to be in the back of the sanctuary. Or to grab someone that you know in, in the congregation and ask for prayer, even before you leave the sanctuary, and pray through these issues. I expect that some of us forget that Christianity is for moral failures like ourselves, not for good people. We forget that Christianity is its not about earning God's love, it's about receiving God's unconditional love in Jesus plus nothing. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith, it's, it's about responding to a historically reliable, coherent verified reality that he died and rose again. So if you're here this morning, you've been struggling to hold on to Christianity, get someone to pray with before you leave today. I want to encourage you to do that. There may be others of you here this morning and you are, maybe you're seeking, maybe you've got questions, maybe you'd like to explore this a little further. Well, we'd like to talk to you this morning and I'd like you to talk to me after the closing hymn. I'll be up in the front. I'm going to stay here for a while. I got two books for two of you. But we'd love to dialogue with you and help you to make a good faith effort 
to investigate the reality of who Jesus said he, he is. We are not here at Stonehill peddling a, a myth. We're not peddling a, a nice story to make you feel better. We believe with all of our heart, soul, and mind that this Jesus really did die and he really did rise again and that's the basis of our hope. And we've all had to work through that and we'd love to help you engage. So I'll be up front. I'd love for you to come down, talk to me after the closing hymn. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I pray for those here this morning who are struggling to believe that Jesus, that Christianity is for them because of their moral failures. I pray that you would help anyone here that whatever they did before they trusted Christ or whatever they did after they trusted Christ, God's grace is bigger than those failures. I pray that you would help them to re-engage and re-embrace this grace. I also pray that you would help us to embrace the reality that we, we do not get right with God through our performance. We get right with God when we trust in what Jesus did. Plus nothing. I do pray, Lord, for people in our fellowship, Lord, that sometimes try to do good things to, to outweigh their bad, Lord. Remind them of your grace. Remind them that the basis of their salvation is the finished work of Jesus plus nothing. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, our mind, and strength. And for those that are searching, Lord, that they would take that next step of searching to really seek, to investigate for themselves the evidence for Jesus' death and his resurrection. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.